Father, thank you for your revelation to us of yourself. And that that revelation of yourself gives us hope in the gospel. And gives us transformation through the gospel. And might we find encouragement, wisdom, strength, and transformation this morning in what we hear. We have started well. As a church body, by and large, we do well. But might we excel still more in caring for, in loving, in being poured out for those who are in our church body and in the body of Christ. And by that, might the world know of the saving power of Jesus Christ. And might the world be attracted to Him because of our love. Would you guide us this morning as we look at this passage that might be familiar to some and less familiar to others, but transformingly powerful for all of us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you are a devotee of animated movies, you may be familiar with the letter number combination A113. I found something out this week. A113 shows up regularly in animated movies. It is Andy's mom's license plate number in Toy Story. It's a door number in Monsters University. It's the courtroom number in Up. It's the camera model number in Finding Nemo. It's on a rat's ear tag in Ratatouille. It's the train number in Cars. But just what does A113 mean? A113 was a classroom number at the California Institute of Arts Says one writer, if it appears in a movie, it means that a Cal Arts alumnus was involved in the anim- animation. And it's not just in animated films. It also appears in live action films like Hunger Games and Mission Impossible. Now you're going to go looking this afternoon, aren't you? Like a digital calling card. Like a cinematic fingerprint. It's a message to the public. Cal Arts alumnus has been here. As believers, what's our calling card to the world? What's our message? How do we communicate that we are alumni, disciples of Jesus Christ? One of Scripture's calling card numbers, if you will, is 1J47. Beloved, let us love one another. 1 John 4, 7. Because so many false teachers had infiltrated the churches of Asia Minor and disrupted the faith of many, John is affirming in this letter, 1 John, a number of essential truths for the believers in the churches of Asia Minor. And this morning we find him particularly holding up again this common theme of love and particularly of loving one another. We Um, If we had taken the time to go through the whole book, we would have seen it first in chapter 2, verse 5. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. 
And then he expounds on that theme of how we love one another and how that demonstrates our love for Jesus Christ and his love of us. We find it again in chapter 3. This is the message, verse 11, which you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. And there again, he opens a long section on care for one another and love within the context of the church body. And in chapter 4, verse 7, he's going to resume his thoughts about love again in the context of the church body and exhort the readers in these churches in Asia Minor to love one another. And what we're going to find in these verses, in verses 7 to 11, is this simple truth. When we know God, we must and we will love one another. Love is an essential in the body of Christ, and it is an inevitable result of the power of Christ's saving work in us. We must love and we will love. This is, this is a helpful reminder to us as we think about excelling still more. This is our theme for the year. And as we think about the church growing and the church maturing and wanting to pursue Jesus Christ and not lose the things that have made us a church that exemplifies Jesus Christ, we want to push in. We want to keep maturing. We want to keep growing. We want to keep excelling still more in our care for one another and in our love for one another particularly. And in this passage, the Apostle John will answer five questions about loving one another. Now, it should be noted that as you think about love and love in the body of Christ, our, our attention is often drawn to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, right? First Corinthians 13, it's, it's been deemed the great love chapter. Well, First Corinthians 13, the great love chapter of the Bible. First John is the great love book of the Bible. This theme pervades the book and it is particularly true of this section. Seven verses seven to fourteen are the heart of this section in chapter four. And in these verses, verses seven to eleven alone, in verses seven to eleven, the the root word for love appears in the Greek text eleven times. Excuse me, thirteen times. I have trouble with math sometimes. Thirteen times in five verses. Paul appeals to love. And then in verse 12, he'll add two more references to love. So this theme just dominates this section. Well, what are we going to discover about love? Well, John is going to answer five questions about loving. And these are going to propel us to excelling in loving for one another. First question, whom should we love? That's verse 7. Whom should we love? And here we find... God's command to love. Well, I've already alluded to the fact that false teachers had infiltrated these churches in Asia Minor and they were teaching a variety of kinds of heresy concerning sin and the person of Jesus Christ. So uh, they were saying that uh, Jesus Christ um, was not fully God-man at all times. Some were saying that Christ assumed the mantle of deity um, uh, when his ministry began, he gave it up, gave up his deity before he died on the cross because you can't kill deity. So when he died on the cross, he wasn't deity. Others flipped that and said he was only deity when he was on the cross. But apart from that, he was only a man. And so there are all kinds of perversions about Jesus Christ that had inf- infiltrated this church. Perversions about sin and its relationship to the body and the person and what kinds of things were sin. The problem wasn't just the false teaching, though. It was what the false teaching produced. 
And what the false teaching produced was a lack of care for one another within the body. We see this particularly in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And we see from that there's this, there's this infiltration into the church of people not caring for one another and people even within the body of Christ hating one another. So they were known for hatred, 3.15. They were known for selfishness and cold-heartedness in chapter 3, verse 17. One writer says about these churches, they were loveless to the core. Now, who wants to go there, to that kind of church? What are you known for? We're known for hatred and animosity. Want to join us? Great testimony. Just a side note, this is free. Ungodly theology, unbiblical theology leads to ungodly living. You know, we we talk about theology a lot around here. Carl, I appreciated wherever Carl, Carl, I appreciated this morning you drawing out that Jesus in his parables was talking about theology. He was giving theology. Theology is essential because we live what we believe. And people who believe wrong things about God, re- believe wrong things about the gospel, will act in ungodly and wrong ways. What we believe matters. We will do what we believe. So Paul, excuse me, John is writing to counteract the ungodly theology of the heretics, but also to counteract their ungodly actions, which were manifest particularly in hatred, animosity, cold-heartedness, selfishness. So notice how Paul... I preach way too much Paul, evidently. Notice what John says, verse 7. Beloved, first word, beloved. And that word reminds his readers of his fellowship and his kinship to them. They are beloved of John, right? So we're in this together. You're my beloved. We belong to one another. But he not only means that we love each other, and he's not only affirming, I'm about to write something to you, and I'm writing out of the context of my love for you. But notice the Third phrase in that verse, beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. So not only are they loved by John, but they have love also from God. So they are beloved in the context of church fellowship by John, but that love ultimately, supremely comes from God. They are loved by him. So he's affirming to them of This unique relationship that is had with God above and believers below that is saturated by love. And because of that, notice the second phrase, beloved, let us love one another. It's not directly an imperative, but it has an imperatival force to it, doesn't it? It's a command. It's not optional. It's essential. It's important. It's critical. It can't be avoided. And notice that he doesn't say, I know some people are really hard to love. I mean, not me, of course, but there are other people in the body that are hard to love. So just attempt to love them one time, and when you're done with that, you're done. That's not what he says, is it? He says, let us love. That's a present tense, and it has the sense of continually, habitually, in an ongoing manner. So love ought to be done persistently and repeatedly. 
You always ought to be known for love of one another. I love you and you love me. There are at least two important ideas to recognize as we think about John's command to love one another. And the first is this. Love can be commanded. It is not an emotion that we are subject to. Oh, it has emotional content, of course. But it is also something that we make a volitional decision to do. It is something that we act on. We, we tend to think, I'm either in love or I'm not in love. And there's just nothing I can do to control that. So I get up in the morning and, you know, things are pretty good and the prospects are looking good and, and I think about the day ahead and maybe it's a special day and Regine and I are going to go out for dinner that night and I roll over and I say, honey, I love you because I feel good and it's a nice day and the sun is shining and rain is coming this week and all is good. Oh, but you know, some days we've had a, a, a conflict the night before and it wasn't reconciled in a full good and good way and it's going to be 172 again today with a 99% humidity and there's not rain in the forecast for the next 18 months and I'm just kind of grumpy and grouchy and I don't know that I love you today and it just happens to me no friend it's not the truth love is a decision it's willful it's intentional it can be commanded we can Control the attitude and affection of love. I can willfully decide to be affectionately loving to my wife, to my kids, and to you, and to anyone else I come across. It's an act that can be commanded and directed. And notice, he's not just saying do loving things. He's saying love. There's that affectionate component, right? I've stolen this from John Piper and used it I don't know how many times, but it's just so true. You know, I go to my wife and I say, oh, honey, and I did this this morning. I said, you're so beautiful and I'm just so delighted with you and I'm just so overwhelmed that you're married to me and I just love you. I'm just so thankful for you. Now, she didn't say it this morning, but she might have said, why? Why why do you love me? Well, because I have to. God says I have to. Well, that's true. Now, what's that going to get me? Silence, if I'm lucky, right? Doesn't work, does it? What's the right response? Well, why do you love me? I can't help myself. I'm just overwhelmed by gratitude. And the privilege that God has given me of being placed in your life to serve you, to love you, to nurture you. Of all the four billion men in this world, I'm the one that gets to love you. And what does that get me? Smile. Right? Satisfaction. Oh, brothers and sisters, we, we can command direct love. Second thing I want you to notice is that believers are commanded to love all believers. Beloved, let us love one another. It's everyone. No exceptions. It's all inclusive. When the kids were little, we used to have, you know, we fought the food wars and we lost for years. 
And we finally smartened up and we said, okay, so at least in our home, the way it worked well for us ultimately was everybody gets to decide one food that they don't want to eat. And whenever that shows up on the table, no questions asked, you don't have to eat it. Everything else you got to eat. And so you declare and you can't change from meal to meal, right? <laughs> you know, so uh, breakfast, I'm not eating cream of wheat. Lunch, I'm not eating potatoes. Dinner, I'm not eating spinach. No, no, no. You get one food. And we don't, we don't get that same latitude in the church. We don't say, well, listen, I'll love everybody, but God, can I just have one that I don't get to have to love? No, no, no. It's all inclusive. It's everybody. John is, John is simply echoing the words of Jesus, isn't he? John 13. Jesus says to his disciples on the night before he was crucified, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. What does that love for all people look like? That you love one another even as I have loved you. Is Jesus Christ selective in his love for his own? Does he play favorites? No favorites with Jesus. He loves us all equally with infinite love. He said, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our great testimony is to love Jesus Christ. Whom should we love? We should love everyone. That's God's command. There's another question that John answers. It's also in verse 7. Why should we love? Why should we love? This goes to the motive for God's love. For us and our command, God's command for us to love. Isn't it true that at times it is costly to love? Most of the time the cost isn't economical. Sometimes it is. Um, Loving children certainly at times can have a high economic factor involved. But there's other kinds of costs that far exceed the economic factors, aren't there? It's costly. Why do you do that? Why do you keep persisting? Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. That word for is causative. Because. It provides the reason. This is why we love. Because love is from God. To say that love is from God means that God is the source of love. And if anyone wants to love, he's got to get that love from God. And if anyone is from God, he must love because that is God's part of God's essential nature. Notice verse 19. We love because he first loved us. There's a connection. He loves so that we are equipped to love. That's why we love. And then he amplifies that even more in verse 7. Love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That phrase does not mean that everyone who does even one loving thing is a Christian. Even unbelievers can do loving kinds of things momentarily or briefly. So that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when we love other believers persistently, regularly, consistently, pouring ourselves out, being willing to be used up 
and affectionately caring for other believers, it gives evidence to the fact that we've been regenerated by God. We've been given a new life by God because that's the only kind of place that that kind of love comes from. We give evidence when we love that we have been born of God. We've been regenerated. That's what that word born means. We've been regenerated, given new life, and that we know God. And when he says we know God, he simply means that we're in fellowship with God. We have union with him. We're intimate with him. So why do we love? Because when we believe Jesus Christ as our Savior, we've been, given a new cre- we've been given a new nature. We have been recreated for this purpose, to love others. God has given us new life, not just to give us new life, but that new life will be poured out through us in caring for others. Why do we love? Because God has loved us. And saved us to that purpose. Third question. What if we don't love? Verse 8. Here's God's warning to love. Students will sometimes ask a teacher or a mom. What happens if I don't turn in this paper? Or what if I turn this paper in late? Employees want to know. What happens If I get sick on a can't-miss day of work, when I'm at the car repair shop, I want to know not only what's it going to cost me, but if I don't do this repair, what's the worst thing that can happen? We all want to know, is it really mandated? Is it really essential? Or if I don't do this, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? And sometimes... We're asking, is it worth it not to do it? And maybe it is worth it not to do it. So a believer might ask the question, what if I don't love? Is it a problem if I'm not loving? Is it a problem if I'm inconsistent with love? Is it a problem if I'm selective with whom I love? Verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God. Period. If someone claims to be a follower of Christ, but he does not give evidence for caring for God's people, he cannot claim to be a follower of Christ. The lack of love is an indication of a lack of God in his life. If he does not love, He does not know God. He has not known God. And God God does not know him in a saving way. Uh, Over the years I've read numerous commentaries and interacted with people who repeatedly say, you know, 1 John is so confusing. 1 John is so confusing. No, brothers, it's not confusing. John is one of the clearest epistles. The problem is not his lack of clarity. His problem is he is so clear, we don't like always what he says. It's hard. And you just can't get any more clear than verse 8, can you? The one who does not love. And again, it's a present tense, right? So he's not saying if you have one moment of not loving someone and you repent and confess and you seek restoration with them. We understand that. 
No, he's saying, if you do not love on a consistent, ongoing, persistent way, if your pattern of life is that you do not love, if that's your pattern, then you do not know God. You have not been saved. You have not been redeemed. Says one commentator, the Bible does not allow us to rest in a merely formal relationship with God. It is possible to attend every church service and prayer meeting, to read the Bible regularly, to teach and preach the scriptures, and yet not know God. If our lives do not manifest, even dimly, something of the love of God in Jesus Christ, then we cannot claim to be Christians. That's exactly what John says. And why does John say that? Notice what he says at the end of the verse. Because the one who does not love does not know God because for God is love. It is the nature of God to love. It is intrinsic to him. And when we become united to Christ who is God, we gain something of his nature. It becomes intrinsic to us. That's who we are. We love Because He is love. And that doesn't mean that we're going to overlook every offense of sin. It doesn't mean that we don't exhort people when we see them sinning and compel them to change. It doesn't mean we don't encourage them to change. We understand that even in love, the Father disciplines those who are His own. But it does mean when we love that all of our actions towards others will be motivated by compassionate love for them. We are tender towards them. We delight in them. We are seeking their spiritual best. We're longing to build in them, to come alongside them and help them in any way that we can. And if we don't, here's the warning. We don't belong to Christ. Pretty sobering, isn't it? Well, how do we do that? We, we want to do it. We do it inconsistently. We do it with difficulty. How do we love? Notice verses 9 and 10. The answer to the question, how do we love? Here we find God's enablement for love. God's enablement for love. Notice verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. That word manifested simply means it's revealed. In this way, God's love was revealed in us. We know that God's love is in us through this. What? That. This is the manifestation. This is the revelation of God's love in us. That God has sent His only begotten, His only unique, same phrase as in John 3.16. It's the unique singular person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into the world so that we might live through Him. This is God's love towards us that He sent as part of an eternal plan of salvation, Jesus Christ, the eternal God, to take on human flesh and die in our place to redeem us so that we might be with Him forever, to be regenerated. And so the reader's So that the readers might not miss the point, he adds this in verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son, parallel to the phrase in verse 9, sending his only begotten son into the world. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation simply means satisfaction. It's the atonement. 
that Christ made for us. He fulfilled the Old Testament law. His blood was poured out over our sin. God looked at his sin, excuse me, he looked at his blood that was covering our sin and he said, satisfied. The debt's been paid. It's been washed. It's been cleansed. The one who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, was sacrificed and died in our place. And God said he was satisfied. And notice the recipients of that gift of love of the Son. Verse 10. Not on ones who loved God. Not that we loved God. Brothers, God, if he loves you, doesn't love you because you have done something so meritorious for you. And he says, oh, that is such a kind person. I'm going to respond to him with my magnanimous love and pour the blood of Christ out on him. No. We hated God. We wanted nothing to do with Him. We were running away from God. All of us. Me, you, every man that was ever created. We did not love. We did not want. We did not pursue. We did not seek God. But He did love He initiated love when there was nothing remotely lovely about us. He did not meet us halfway. Without Him coming to us, we would never have come to Him. So how does the gospel message relate to loving one another? We love others out of the overflowing of His loving salvation of us. We give to others because He gave to us. Paul wrote a letter to this same church that was circulated among other churches in Asia Minor. Ephesians 5, he writes this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word Christ loved us when we were unlovely. We love having received the gospel in the same kind of way. We love others because He has loved us. So I define love this way. Love is a commitment. It's a decision. It's a decision of my will and of my affections. I can't just say, well, I love you because I have to, but I don't want to. No, no, no. It's my affections. It is affectionate, passionate, emotional to your needs and best interests, regardless of the cost to me as an expression of Christ's love for me. I love you because Christ loved me. Love is a commitment of my will and my affections to your needs and best interests, regardless of the cost to me because of Christ's love for me. If you're ever in premarital counseling with me, you might as well learn that now because I always have you memorize that definition. Or you might say it this way. Similarly, love is my privileged commitment 
to give what is good and gracious to you regardless what it costs because Christ loves me and I love him. Love means a pouring out and a using up. It is striking to me. I was thinking about this this week as I was working on the message and thinking about the message and thinking, okay, how do we illustrate this? What kinds of things might John be talking about as he's thinking about love? And what's interesting is all through this section, he just keeps saying, love one another, love one another, love one another. You ought to love because you've been loved. But he never says this is what love does. Why? Because the manifestations of love are multitude. Almost uncountable. There are many different manifestations of love. The point isn't what does it do. The point is that it is sacrificial. And it flows out of our love for Christ. We've been loved by Him. We love Him so we love others. What does that look like? Well, tell me what your marriage is like and I'll tell you what, what it looks like. Tell me what your children are like and I'll tell you what it's like. Tell me what your parents are like and I can tell you some specific things to do. But, but it's just... It's vast as to the different kinds of ways it's going to be played out. Just know it's costly, sacrificial. It's being poured out and used up. Why? Because that's what Christ did in loving us. He loves us and we love Him. And friends, this is is what Christianity is all about. If you are not a Christian, understand... That when we say God loves you, it doesn't just mean God loves you and everything is good. No, no, no. It means God loves you and sent his son to die on the cross for you. And if you want to be loved by him in a personal family way, you need to trust in Jesus Christ as your savior from your sin. And if you are here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior, God does not love you in a saving way yet. You aren't good with God just because God has a general love for mankind. You need a particular love from God that comes through Jesus Christ. And you must trust Christ to free you and liberate you from your sin. And that freedom and that liberation from your sin doesn't mean you get to go and do whatever you want and indulging in whatever sin you want. It means you get to do whatever you want in indulging the sanctification of Christ and pursuing Him. Now you're freed, really freed, to be obedient to Christ. That's what the cross does. And friend, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, I urge you and compel you, trust Him today. One last question that John answers here. It's in verse 11. Why should we love? And here is God's motive to love. A second time. God's motive to love repeated. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The word if is much more certain than our English word if. He doesn't mean if. Well, maybe he does and maybe he doesn't. If you're in Christ, there is a certainty to the love that God has for us. And so we might translate that since or because. Because God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's our motive. We've been loved by God. And because He loves us, we love others. God's love is our standard 
for loving others. And notice, God does not love us for our merit, but because of our need. God does not love us for our inherent value or our ability to love Him. God loves us because it is His nature to love, and He loves us because of the magnitude and extent of His gracious and sacrificial love. And those are the motives for our loving others. We don't love others because they deserve our love. We love others because they need our love. I've heard someone say years ago, and I have just found this to be so tremendously helpful. Biblically speaking, apart from God, I do not need to be loved. But I do need to love. I can live without love in this world when I am loved by God, but I cannot live without loving others. Love for others is essential. My love from others is not essential. Now, go outside these walls and see if you're going to find that repeated anywhere. It's not a popular statement, but that's the reality. We've been loved by God, and we love others in the same way that he loves us. And notice again. The imperatival force to this. Verse 11. We also ought. To love one another. There's a. There's an inner constraint. An oughtness. If you will. To it. It's a compulsion. And that compulsion is not just that I gotta, but I get to. It's my right and it's my privilege. Now, back in the days when it used to rain in Granbury and grass would grow and trees needed trimming and those kinds of things, on a Thursday evening or on a Saturday morning, it would be not unusual that you might find Regine and me out in the yard. I'd be pushing the lawnmower and I'd be pulling out the weed trimmer and I'd be trimming and... I'd be doing a good job. Regine says I cut the lawn really well. I don't know. I think it's part of my OCD stuff. You know, straight lines, all that stuff. And so we're out there and I'm working in the yard. I'm mowing, I'm trimming. And Regine is out there. She's pruning and she's cutting and she's planting. And, and there's two kinds of ought on demonstration in that day. I'm out there because I oughta, I gotta. That grass has got to be cut. And I do it because of the necessity of it. Regina's out there because she loves it. Regina's not happy unless there's a little bit of, uh, there's a lot of dirt underneath her fingernails. That's just, that's just the way she's wired. She's, if, if she's going to have a happy day, She's up early in the morning. She walks, walks the dog. It's like 85 degrees all day long, a little overcast so the sun doesn't beat down on her. And she's in the yard for 10 hours until I come home. That's her best day. That might be like on the far end of the bad scale for me. And John says this ought to love. It ought to be the way Regine loves being in the yard. It's a joy. You just can't imagine not doing it. It's this inward compulsion. I do these things because I love to do these things. 
So when John says love one another, he's talking about a radical, sacrificial kind of love. Frankly, it looks bizarre to the world. Who does that? No one. Except God. And except for those who are called by God to be His. Is it even possible to love the way John exhorts us to love? I mean, is this even realistic? And John doesn't do it himself, but just consider the Apostle John. His nickname in some circles is the Apostle of Love. And that comes from just all of his references to love in his letters. You just... You just find his letters and his gospel saturated with this theme of love. Yet, yet love didn't come naturally to John. John's first name, first nickname, along with his brother James, is the Son of Thunder. He didn't acquire that nickname because he was a shy, retiring type who was reticent to express his opinion. He was not unassuming and gentle. Says one commentator, he was rugged and hard-edged, just like the rest of the fishermen disciples. And again, he was every bit as intolerant, ambitious, zealous, and explosive as his elder brother. In fact, the one and only time the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, recorded John speaking for himself, he displayed his trademark, aggressive, self-assertive, impertinent intolerance. John was capable of behaving in the most sectarian, narrow-minded, unbending, reckless, and impetuous fashions. He was volatile, he was brash, he was aggressive, he was passionate, zealous, and personally ambitious, just like his brother James. They were cut from the same bolt of cloth. But when John wrote this letter, while still bold and strong and courageous, he'd also learned to love So the commentator writes, John died, by most accounts, around A.D. 98 during the reign of Emperor Trajan. Jerome says in his commentary on Galatians that the aged Apostle John was so frail in his final days at Ephesus that he had to be carried into the church. And one phrase was constantly on his lips. Children, love one another. And asked why he always said this, he replied, It is the Lord's command, and if this alone be done, it is enough. By the grace of God, John learned to excel still more in love. By the grace of God, let us also love still more. Father, thank you for the reminder of this word, of the importance of this central facet of relationships. It's not unimportant. It's not non-essential. It is critical to who we are. And it dominates every relationship. There's not a relationship we have that doesn't fall under the influence of this command. And might we, who have loved well for decades and who have had a reputation in this community of loving well, might we excel still more. Might we not give up. Might we persist in loving you and in loving one another well. To the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.